from Casa. Woohoo! So we're going to read Luke 19, 1 through 10. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. He, there was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road for Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He has gone to the get to be a guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Ugh. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor, Lord, and if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, Salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Good morning, everybody. Gosh, I love the Kents. Those are some of my favorite people in the world, and we've missed seeing them in person. But it's been great. It's been great seeing people on screen who we haven't seen in a while who are staying home because of the pandemic, isn't it? So awesome. Hopefully uh, you have a Bible um, that you can open up to Luke 19. That's where we're going to be today, as you heard from the story um, just a, a few minutes ago. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can uh, use one of the ones on the backs of the pews there. Um, for the last few weeks, we have been in a series that we've been calling Love Your Neighbor. And in this series, we've been examining the life of Jesus, sort of the way that he worked out what he would later call the, the greatest commandments. And the way he described the greatest commandment was to love God with everything that you have, with your whole life, and from that love, let it sort of overflow and spill over into love for your neighbors, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so if you've missed any of it, you can go back and check it out on the website. But um, so far, we have looked at how Jesus has loved difficult or awkward people. We started with a social outcast in John chapter 4. Um, then we talked about the crowds that were following him. Then we talked about an out-of-his-mind demonized man. And then Jace provided a palate cleanser with children. <laughs> um, but today we are turning our attention towards something that is even more confounding, which is enemy love. So last time I talked with you, I got to tell you about how Jesus teaches us to love people with demons. Today we get to talk about how Jesus calls us to love people that we hate. Don't you guys just love Jace right in the middle? <laughs> Talking about Mr. Rogers. Now one of the most radical ideas to transform our world was the call from Jesus to love not just the vulnerable or the weak or the people who are like you or with family ties, but to go all the way to loving the contemptible, the enemy. And in our time, uh, many of us might sort of wince at the idea of even having an enemy, but we live in such an era of deep cultural polarization, and I believe that the call to love is desperately needed. 
Rich Velotis, a pastor in New York, says it this way in a recent tweet. He said, if the greatest commandment in scripture is rooted in love, then the greatest sin must be the failure to love. If the greatest commandment is rooted in love, then the greatest sin must be to resist or to act contrary to love. Put another way, the great sin of our time that pervades much of our world, I believe, is the sin of contempt. So how do we as followers of Jesus resist the pull to hate or despise others rather than walking in love? How do we resist contempt and instead let honor flow through us? Now, it seems a bit cliche to reference the film 1984, um, the dystopian novel, or the, the movie that was based on the dystopian novel by George Orwell. Um, everybody wants to talk about 1984 and Brave New World. Uh, no matter what side of the political aisle you're on, you sort of assume all of the themes of 1984 on the other side. And because both sides are guilty of it, it just goes to show that it was a pretty profound book. Um, it was written back in 1949, and it was strikingly prophetic in its themes. And one of the scenes that is particularly haunting is what's called the two minutes hate. The citizens of this fictitious nation were required every day to show up and watch a film of propaganda against their national enemy and to scream at the screen, scream out their anger, scream out their frustration, scream out their hate. It was, it was meant to be sort of an outlet. Their lives were so repressed that this would be a space where they could just sort of like let it all out, but orient it all towards their shared common enemy. And so during the two minutes hate, People would get so carried away. They would grit their teeth. They would lash out physically. They would throw objects at the screen. I was considering just having that scene playing silently in the background while I was talking about this. And it's honestly like so visceral, it like gets into you. I don't know if, if demons can come through a screen, but if they could, that would probably what triggers it. So you can just look at the picture. Now this obviously isn't just science fiction that nations have used propaganda to generate anger and hate towards a shared enemy all over the world, particularly since the advent of film over the last century. And there is nothing subtle about the propaganda. And in, the, in our time, in the media today, whether we're talking about social media or the 24-hour cable news cycle, we as Americans, I believe, are being trained to participate in a modern version of the two minutes hate. We are told by voices all around us all the time, who is good, who is bad, who is at fault for all of our problems that we are collectively experiencing or that you specifically are experiencing. It's never your fault, it's somebody else's fault and they probably don't look, think, or act like you. We're taught who wants to destroy us and that even if they are given just a little bit of power, they will destroy us. We are told who to fear. And this fear, if it's left to grow under the surface, it slowly morphs into anger and contempt and hatred. Hate is being cultivated one social media post at a time. 
Each little Facebook rant that we take in or meme or podcast is forming something in our hearts. And if we are honest, our flesh gobbles it up. Nothing feels more satisfying than outrage. In fact, scientific studies bear this out, that the most satisfying feeling is not love or even sexual satisfaction or anything like that. The most powerful emotion is the feeling of outrage. The problem is that you cannot show compassion or empathy to someone that you are being trained to despise. You cannot love someone you have been trained to fear. You will not show honor to someone who you've been told is utterly contemptible. And this is the language that is used in our media all the time. Contempt to define it, it's, a, it's the feeling that someone is worthless, deserving of disdain, or beneath consideration. Contempt is actually part of a continuum of resentment and anger. Here's how it's described in psychology circles. Resentment is anger that is directed towards someone of higher status. So think like a boss, or a teacher, or a parent. Anger is something that is directed towards someone of the same status, but contempt is anger directed towards someone of lower status. So when we're talking about contempt, we are talking about devaluing people and considering them beneath us. It establishes us as superior, and it feels really good, doesn't it? Am I alone? Are you all worried about your pastor right now? A couple of months ago, I went to a Timbers game with some friends. The friend who organized uh, the outing, um, I think, didn't really know how the, the stadium is lined up very well, so he found these really affordable tickets. And we were all excited about it until we realized that the tickets were right up against the away team's supporters section. And this was a rivalry match against the Seattle Sounders, our most hated rivals. Um, and so, we were sort of in this ocean of people who were going against our team. And this crowd was wild and frankly, really obnoxious, which is totally unlike all the Timber supporters who are very respectable, who are always kind. And this game was the single worst Timbers game I've ever seen uh, that they've ever played. We were destroyed by our rivals by a score line that I don't even want to say out loud. And so in front of us, there was this group of young men, and they were, um, they were sitting like right in front of us, and they were uh, out of control, and they were looking for a fight. Every time the other team scored, which was frankly way too many times, they would turn around and look me in the eye, and it took a lot of self-restraint to not sort of oblige them of what they were looking for. Um, and, and here's the thing, in my heart, I could feel the not-so-subtle shift of annoyance turning into anger, turning into contempt. I literally started to look down on them, and it felt really good. And, and think about how strange that psychology is. I was at a Timbers game watching my team getting their butts handed to them by the other team, and yet I was the one that was feeling smug and superior. It, around all of these other people. It was a protective mechanism that kept me from feeling like I was inferior. And here's the thing. 
who cares, right? Like this, this is a group of 21 young men, or uh, sorry, 22 young men kicking a ball on a field for my enjoyment. Like who cares? But in that moment, my heart was being exposed. When outrage and contempt become the operating system of a society, it's disastrous. It's really dangerous. Throughout history, we see that all human atrocities begin with dehumanization. Whether we're talking about something as horrific as like Rwandan genocide or what happened during the Holocaust or just simply what we see on a frankly way too frequently um, in mass shootings here in the United States. It all begins by lowering the value of others to justify the right to dismiss or destroy other people. But here's what, what John the Apostle writes in his letter. He says, anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. It comes back to the heart. Though we may assure ourselves that we would never participate in something as horrific or violent or vile as these historic atrocities, we would never succumb to something like that. Our hearts can actually participate in the same kind of sin just under the surface in the way that we treat others with hate or contempt. And while all of us would love to assume that we are above being manipulated and would never succumb to propaganda, we have to admit the reality that we are being fed from a fire hose every day with messages that devalue the other. In his book, Beautiful Resistance, John Tyson writes this. He says, believers get drawn into contempt in the realm of politics, but they cannot isolate the attitude from other areas of their hearts. It soon bleeds into the way we see our brothers and sisters inside the Christian community. A hermeneutic of suspicion shuts down our vulnerability, resulting in anger and fear. No church can thrive with this lurking in the pews. Because we have new covenant hearts designed to live by grace and love, contempt in our hearts poison us. No followers of Jesus can walk in fullness and joy when they harbor cool hate in their hearts. Here's the thing. What we see in the world around us that we are swimming in and resisting all the time, if we are not consciously fighting back and pushing back against it, the sad thing that we see happening over and over again in the church today is that what's going on out there begins to infect what happens in here. And there is nothing that our enemy would love more than to see that happen. I was meeting with a pastor earlier this week, and you could just see the fatigue the burnout, the pain in his face as he talked about just the storms that he has been weathering, personal attacks against him, walking with other churches, and the enemy has been just loving, sowing this kind of contempt into the church, dividing people. And the way of Jesus commands us to resist. Now, all of this sets up our story from Luke chapter 19 about a wee little man in a sycamore tree that... Sunday school song has been stuck in my head all week. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? That song? Yeah, okay. It's got some church kids in here. I can still see the felt board. Um, now, this story is easy for us to read in sort of the Sunday school version about a short guy who wanted to see Jesus but couldn't see over the crowd. So he climbed up a tree and Jesus noticed him and invited him for dinner because Jesus loves short people too. Um, <laughs> But 
This story is actually a profound demonstration of Jesus overcoming contempt with honor and demonstrating what it looks like to love the enemy. In verse 1, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. In this first two verses, the thing that you need to key in on is that word chief tax collector. It's something we need to pay attention to. If you're new to the Bible, um, tax collectors are spoken of throughout the New Testament as the most despised people in a city. And a chief tax collector was even worse. You see, in the first century when Jesus was, was ministering, Israel was occupied and oppressed by Rome. And these tax collectors were Jews who had sort of sold out their own people in order to get rich by aligning themselves with power. They were corrupt and they would exploit members of their own community for personal gain. And so here's what they did. They, they basically made a living by adding their own fees on top of Rome's already exorbitant tax. Hidden fees are not new. And then Roman soldiers would be behind them to enforce it. So Rome might demand from a poor farmer uh, a tax of something like 50%, which was absolutely unheard of, unreasonable, and was, that was the reason why all of the people in Israel hated and resisted Rome. But then on top of that, Zacchaeus would come along and he would demand an additional 20% as a collector's fee. You know, so they'd be taxed 70, 75% of their income, and they'd see that others are just raking in the money and becoming wealthy off of their oppression. And there's nothing that a farmer could do about it. And as a chief tax collector, Zacchaeus would have had other tax collectors under him. He was at the very top of the pyramid. He was making lots of money. So this wealthy short man was the most despised person in all of the region. He was infamous. He's like a Bernie Madoff or a Martin Shkreli. Fraudsters who got obscenely wealthy by exploiting other people and are now in jail for it. And look at Jesus' response, or we see right here in verse 3. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd, so he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Here is this chief tax collector, and he is curious about Jesus. He's probably heard some things about Jesus, but he wants to see it for himself. And so he climbs up a tree to get a better view. And when Jesus reaches the tree, he looks up and he says, Zacchaeus, get out of the tree. Come on down. I'm going to your house tonight. Some of the interesting things to, to pay attention to right here. Notice that Jesus calls Zacchaeus by his name. We see in verse 1 that Jesus is passing through the, 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 the city of Jericho. He has no intention of staying there. He's just on a journey and he's going through the town. But he seems to know who Zacchaeus is. And maybe this is a word of knowledge. Maybe the Holy Spirit gave him a name and he said it out loud. But much, much more likely... Jesus knew Zacchaeus by his reputation. 
Isn't it fascinating that Zacchaeus was the one who was curious to know more about Jesus? Like, Jesus' reputation was almost fuzzier and foggier in the region than Zacchaeus's was. Jesus may have even been exploited by Zacchaeus or his lower collectors. Jesus knew exactly who this man was, and that is why the people of the city murmured. They knew that Jesus knew who he was eating with, which made it so offensive. And we have to learn, as, as, as good disciples, we have to learn how to put ourselves in the story. Because we live at such a great distance from their context that we very easily miss sort of the, how this would feel to the average person in the first century. We even can tend to sort of overly align ourselves with Jesus and see him as like punk rock, upending the system of, by loving the wrong kinds of people. But pause for a second and try to relate this story to your own context. In your view of the world, who is the person that you despise? Who is beneath consideration for you? Who is the person or group of people you would murmur about? Who are the, as one politician said, basket of deplorables? Be honest with yourself. And now imagine that Jesus goes to that person or those people and invites them for a personal VIP dinner party. Of all of the other worthy people in the area, Jesus picks them, the enemy. And notice, Jesus doesn't pick them so that he can go sit them down, preach them straight, call them out, demand that they change. There's no indication. He says, I'm coming to dinner. He's not there to judge or correct. He's just there to love. How would that feel? What united the people of Jericho was a shared contempt for Zacchaeus, a well-earned contempt. And Jesus cuts through the power of their disdain with honor. He honors him by adjusting his whole itinerary to share a meal with this tax collector and all of his friends. And in this moment, instantly, Zacchaeus is transformed. He was not transformed by people's judgment or their anger or his social isolation, he was transformed by the love in Jesus' eyes and the honor of his mouth. Verse 8, but Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, you can imagine the crowd all sort of raising their hand, like, right here, bud. I will pay back four times the amount Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. The honoring love of Jesus for the least deserving person in Jericho cut to the heart of a sinner and all at once he's saved. He receives Jesus' love and he is transformed. And notice that Jesus' love doesn't let him off the hook. He, he actually goes out and he walks out repentance, not just by saying he was sorry, but by also following it with reparations. Jesus didn't wait for transformation to honor it. 
He didn't say, get your life in order so that I can lift it up as a great example. Quite the opposite. Honoring love for the contemptible was the thing that led to the transformed heart. And then look at what Jesus does. He restores him to the community. He reminds the crowd that Zacchaeus is also a son of Abraham. He's part of the covenant people. He is a member. The lost has been found and has been brought back in. He has been restored to the family. What Jesus is doing here in Luke chapter 19 is he's mirroring what he taught in Luke chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Plain or what we see uh, in, in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, one of Jesus' most revolutionary teachings. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus' call to love in contrast to the teachings of the day, went way beyond the boundary markers of family or national identity or the pitiable. His call to love even included enemies. This is powerful in light of the world that he was ministering in. The Jews were oppressed on all sides by enemy occupiers. They were mistreated. They were exploited. They were harassed by the Romans and every other people group around them. And in this context, Jesus calls them to lead the way in transforming the world by demonstrating the kingdom of God. How? With love. With love. He was teaching a transformative way of life, a vision of the kingdom that resists not only the the prevailing culture and the values around him, but also the evil inclinations that reside in every one of our hearts. He calls his his followers to confront evil with the greatest and most sacrificial of loves by extending it to the most contemptible people. And here is where this this truth really hits home for us. The reason that we are called to love this way is because this is the exact way that Jesus first loved you and me. In Colossians chapter 1, we read, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. We must thank God for enemy love because we were the beneficiaries of enemy love. That's the gospel. That's the whole gospel right there. Ephesians chapter 2 says it this way, that because of his great love for us, that though we were, were worthy of wrath and condemnation, that Jesus actually took upon himself all of that wrath that we deserved and instead instead extends grace to us, his enemies. 
Jesus' kingdom is radical. It's the kind of kingdom where enemies are welcomed, loved, restored, and made sons and daughters. And it's then these enemies, these people who were enemies, who are therefore commissioned to go out into the rest of the world and go find all of the other lost souls and bring them home to the Father. In a blog post, uh, Preston Sprinkle writes this, Jesus' command to love your enemies was the most popular verse in the early church. It was quoted in 26 places by 10 different writers in the first 300 years of Christianity, which makes it the most celebrated command among the first Christians. It, later in his blog, he actually says that this command, love your enemies, was like the early church's version of John 3.16. <coughs> Enemy love was the hallmark of the Christian faith. Other religions taught that people should love their neighbors. They even taught forgiveness for those who wronged them. But actually loving your enemy, only Jesus and his followers took love this far. Because this is how far the love of God extends to us. While we were God's enemies, Christ loved us. Christians no longer distinguish between neighbors and enemies. Through the death of Jesus, we are swept up into God's love for all people, even enemies like us. The one who loves his enemies can no longer have enemies. He is left only with neighbors. I love that. The one who loves his enemies can have no enemies. The most celebrated command in the early church was love your enemies. In the first centuries of the church, we see that it was not an easy time to be a Christian. There was horrific persecution and martyrdom. And the followers of Jesus followed him by forgiving and, by forgiving and extending love, even as they were being murdered in the arena. And, as, um, uh, and, and rather than defending themselves or protesting for their rights or demanding their own freedoms, they simply turned the other cheek and died with joy. The church triumphed over the powers of Rome by loving it to its knees. And so what if the church took on this approach in our day and our age? What would it look like for the people of God to not be known by what they're against, but to turn and, and, and to turn off the flow of hate and contempt and in, instead demonstrate what it looks like to extend welcome and love to those who are worthy of contempt? What would it look like to welcome your enemy to the table for a bottle of wine and a shared meal? And how might that love transform your enemy into a neighbor? How would extending honor to the contemptible transform them into a brother or a sister? In um, November 2008, Following the, the election of our first uh, black president, a group of prominent white nationalists from the United States, Canada, and Russia all gathered together in a hotel in Memphis. The room was filled with key figures of the white supremacy movement, and one of the most celebrated and anticipated of them was a young 19-year-old college student named Derek Black. Can we put his picture up? There we go. Derek, if you've read his story, it was published in Politico a couple of years ago, um, but he was the heir of his father, who was a man named Don Black, who was a prominent white supremacist 
He was the creator of a website called Stormfront, which was the most infamous white nationalist website in the world. It was a message board. It was a breeding ground for hate. In fact, um, uh, Derek's mother, before she had married Don, um, had formerly been married to David Duke, who you may recognize him uh, as the former Grand Wizard of the KKK. So at this meeting, Derek, this 19-year-old kid, he was given a speaking slot. And in this speaking slot, he outlined a strategy for how they were to take their vision uh, into the political mainstream with ideas like white replacement theory and other white nationalist ideologies. If you hear those words being bandied about in, in media, know where they come from. He was celebrated as the future of the white nationalist movement. Now, while he was seen as this wonderkin among white supremacists, Derek was struggling back home at his school. Um, early one morning in April, uh, in his first year at university, Derek was outed at his school on a student message board. There was, uh, and the message was titled, Derek Black, white supremacist, radio host, new college student. He had been exposed in his college as a white supremacist and suddenly the most infamous student on campus. So Derek sat in his room afternoon after afternoon reading the responses of all of the people who were responding to this message on the message board. And they were talking about how Derek was not welcome at that college. He didn't represent what they were all about. He was utterly contemptible and as he would read these messages, he felt more and more alone. But then something happened. The only Orthodox Jewish student on campus, a young man named Matthew Stevenson, he was also feeling very alone um, and, uh, and like no one, no one around him really understood him. So he began hosting a weekly Friday Shabbat dinner um, for friends. Um, and he, wanted to, he just wanted to create a space for sort of understanding and welcome. So his regular guests were curious Christians or atheists or people from all different ethnicities and backgrounds. They were mostly coming to his Shabbat dinners out of a sense of curiosity and wanting to sort of learn about a new culture. And then after it had been going for a while and had some momentum, Matthew Stevenson decided that he wanted to invite Derek. Now this invitation shook his group. Some of those who were coming regularly on Friday nights, they actually declined the invitation to come if Derek was going to be there. But after having been shunned by the entire campus, Derek decided that he would go. It was the only invitation that he had received since being exposed. And so week after week, Derek starts going to these meals. And he would ask questions, but he mostly went there and sat and listened and was quiet. And slowly over time, his views began to change. His views of others were being confronted and challenged by real relationships. His friends encouraged him to look at issues sort of from another perspective. And they were patient with him, and he was humbled. And slowly, the framework of white nationalism started to dismantle. It was actually dissolved away from him, and it was replaced by a diverse friend group. And so as he was preparing to go off to graduate school on the other side of the country, he could feel a draw to sort of return to where he had come from. He didn't want to lose his family over his new perspective. 
but he knew that he also couldn't go back down that path and that he couldn't live a double life. He was never going to be able to be this new person that he had become and maintain the ties that he had had in his past. And so with the support of his friends, he renounced white nationalism with an open letter. And this open letter ended up uh, shooting shockwaves through the white nationalist movement, specifically on Stormfront, his dad's website. And in, this, in, in doing this, in sending this open letter, he did, in fact, lose everything. Relationships were broken with his parents and his family. He was shunned and uh, wasn't allowed to come to the Thanksgiving table, and it broke his heart. How was Derek transformed? Was it the public shaming of thousands of college students? Was it the isolation that was caused from his convictions? No, Derek was transformed by the honoring love from an enemy. It was the welcome from someone who had been himself hurt by Derek's words. And the story of Derek ends with his own Zacchaeus moment. He loses everything in publicly renouncing his sin. But he also gains everything as he walks out freedom from this day forward. His repentance was costly, but so was the love that brought him out. Jesus is wanting to welcome many to himself through his people. But if we are being honest with ourselves, how many of us are also bound up with feelings of contempt, disdain, even hatred? Maybe we wouldn't use those words, but we just feel like a dismissiveness, a frustration, an annoyance towards other people. And maybe, maybe this feeling is towards an individual. Maybe as soon as I start talking, you can picture that person in your mind, that person who is most difficult, who has caused you the most pain and the most grief and the most suffering and is constantly nagging at you and who hurts you time and time and time again. Or maybe it's toward a particular type of person. Or maybe it's toward a, you know, another political or social tribal identity. Maybe you've bought into the prevailing culture wars that are going back and forth, causing distrust and mistrust of people from uh, along the lines of masks or vaccines or political identities or a million other things. Jesus is calling us to love even our enemies. Matthew Stevenson did this by intentionally opening up his dinner table. And so the question is, how would God call you to make space for those individuals or those types of people, particularly those who you would prefer to avoid. How do we love like Jesus? How do we love our neighbors who we feel contempt for? We love them with honor, with choosing to see the best in them, to recognize that they too are sons and daughters. And we do this because he first loved us. He first loved us while we were still his enemies and sacrificially made a way for us to be restored as sons and daughters. Amen?